This episode is sponsored by Penguin Random House Audio. Book clubs are back in action, and so are many other fall activities. Audiobooks are the perfect complement to your busy schedule since you can listen while you do other things, multitasking at its best. You won't be unprepared for book club ever again. Listen to new releases such as The Witch Elm by Tana French, Florida, written and read by Lauren Groff, or Christina Dalcher's Vox, and enjoy a whole new book club experience. For more listening suggestions, visit tryaudiobooks.com slash book riot. Thanks again to Penguin Random House Audio. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. Today, John Jennings joined us to talk about Octavia Butler's Wild Seed, and R.F. Kuang picked The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Otsuka. John Jennings is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. His work centers around intersectional narratives regarding identity politics and popular media. Jennings is co-founder slash organizer of the Schoenberg Center's Black Comic Book Festival in Harlem, the MLK NorCal's Black Comic Arts Festival in San Francisco, and SoulCon, the Brown and Black Comics Expo at Ohio State University. His current projects include the art collection Cosmic Underground, a grimoire of black speculative discontent, the horror anthology Box of Bones, the coffee table book Black Comics Returns with Damian Duffy, the supernatural crime noir story Blue Hand Mojo, and the Brown Stoker Award and Eisner Award-winning New York Times best-selling graphic novel adaptation of Octavia Butler's classic dark fantasy novel Kindred. My name is John Jennings, and Wild Seed by Octavia E. Butler is my recommended I remember the first time I read Wild Seed was probably the early 2000s, which is really difficult for me to think about because I'm from Mississippi originally. I went to HBCU, Jackson State University, and I have to admit I had never come across what would be considered black speculative culture at all. We definitely read a lot of classics and things from the Harlem Renaissance, etc. But it took all that time for me to to, to come to uh, Octavia Butler's work. And I remember just how amazing it was to read such rich characters. She had such a facility for using, um, I was like the best words, I mean, it's, you know, it's sparse, very sparse and, and direct language to paint just the most beautiful tapestries of, of how these characters interacted with each other. So I was I was really blown away. I think the, re- the way that I was introduced to Octavia's work was I kind of stumbled into it just from overhearing or maybe seeing it online or something like that. It definitely wasn't for a class. It was... Um, Probably just my own curiosity around science fiction. I'm, I'm a huge science fiction fan, and I was just aghast. I had never heard of her before until that time. Wild Seed is about two ancient African immortal beings, Doro and Anyanwu, both from the uh, from like the, the West African continent. Doro actually is thousands of years old because he is an entity that can actually jump into different bodies, and he feeds on different bodies, so he can actually look like anyone and has had probably thousands of bodies by the time he bumps into Anyanwu. The story takes place from about the, the mid-1600s to like the late 1800s. Anyanwu is the protagonist. And Doro, to a certain degree, is the antagonist. And a lot of the uh, of the, the tension comes between multiple things, things around like colonization, eugenics, the, the struggle between uh, men and women. It's a really beautiful allegory about all these different things. But essentially, Doro is trying to create a master race based off of a eugenics program that he's been doing for thousands of years. And Anyanwu is actually a healer and a shapeshifter. For the first time in their lives, they found people that they can actually maybe like be with, except for the, for the fact that Doro is actually extremely cruel and has been doing these really 
insidious experiments where where they're forcing people to mate with each other and have has created like this incestuous pool of like powerful super beings. Basically, it's it's it's, a, it's about the tension between these two characters trying to work out how they can actually exist because Anyanwu is immortal as well. She is as long as she's not mortally wounded, and so she can actually shift from one body to the other, and she can turn to any person or animal. Whereas Doro is actually jumping from one body to the other. Even the way that they're thinking about the, the manifestation of these powers actually has this really interesting polarizing aspect about who these beings are. As far as favorite characters go, it's hard not to really be intrigued by Doro. I remember reading somewhere that Butler said that Doro was her favorite character too. I think Doro, even though he's insidious in, in, in his methods, is an extremely powerful and, and well-developed character. And even though he's the antagonist to a certain degree, he does change over the period of time. He actually does soften. And actually, the thing that's most powerful uh, against him is probably his love or his respect for Anyanwu. And, that, and he learns how to do that over so much, with so so many centuries of them interacting. Now, as far as like a favorite scene, I really love the, the section of the book when Anyanwu becomes a dolphin. And she actually is swimming and she just lives as a dolphin for many years. And she actually has a dolphin mate and she has dolphin family. I thought that was really, really well done. I was like, oh, we could actually have a whole section just about her being a dolphin. <laughs> you know, I really, really enjoyed Anyanwu's shape-shifting into becoming this other creature. And, and I think it definitely makes you appreciate what it means for, for someone to exist like this. So, I, you know, I thought that was a really powerful scene. A lot of people don't realize this, but actually... Originally, Kindred, I think, was supposed to be a part of the Patternist series as well, because some, there's some manuscripts at the Huntington Library where her papers are that actually have Doro, one of the main characters from Wild Seed, actually in Kindred, which is trippy to see. Like, she, he's actually interacting with Dana, the main character from Kindred. I would say that because of the fact that, that Wild Seed takes place over many, many centuries and deals with the, uh, the slave trade and also with, with issues around uh, black history, I would say like it's a speculative black history story about the differences and tensions between black men and black women, because uh, a lot of it deals with those issues. And because the, the, the historical aspect is so well researched, because she was well known for her research, she, she had just tons and tons of books that she would read just to even start writing something, that that would be a really good way to segue into it. There's someone who loves history, but from a different standpoint. So I always, always look at it as, as an alternative history story. That would probably be my way to kind of spin it for people. The other thing too, it's like a speculative romance novel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because there is this really weird romantic connection between Doro and Anyangwu that's very compelling. It almost feels like, you know, Wuthering Heights or something. It's, it's on that level of dark, compelling romance, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, but it's just with shapeshifters and people who can uh, eat people's souls. I actually did assign a project based off a of wild seed in my one of my graphic design classes. Uh, one of the students had the students had to do like a Doro self portrait. The idea was that they actually had to interview people around them. Uh, being that Doro can jump in a, from different bodies, uh, it, it actually poses a really interesting thing about what he looks like. So a lot about discrimination and race and uh, other types of ideas around, around the other are centered in our our, our embodiment, right? And, and, and the uh, the physical body that we're in. So we're talking about a character that basically wears a body like a suit, you know? So the, the, the assignment was to actually basically take pictures of 10 or more of your close friends. Then what we did is we combined all of the class uh, portraits together and made one big giant Doro portrait, right? And so it really opened up a lot of conversation about 
learning about other cultures, about really thinking about who you're hanging out with, or why don't you actually have more friends from various backgrounds, these types of conversations. It was in Buffalo, New York, which unfortunately is a really segregated space, like a lot of cities in America. So it was a really interesting way to kind of open up discussions about identity politics and about kind of reaching out outside of the uh, the norm, so to speak, to, to meet more people. Honestly, I think Wild Seed is probably one of her most popular books. It does actually, even though it's part of a series, it, it actually has a very contained narrative. For me, I, uh, and I've actually talked to several people about this, I think whatever the first book of Butler's that you read is probably becomes your favorite book. I think that's how, kind of like how it goes. Uh, so it was the fir- my first book, and so it's my, still my favorite book. Thanks again to John Jennings for joining us and recommending Wild Seed by Octavia Butler. You can find Kindred, a graphic novel adaptation, published by Abrams Comic Arts, wherever books are sold. You can follow him on Twitter at J.I. Jennings. This episode is sponsored by Home and Away by Candace Montgomery. Dear Martin meets Friday Night Lights. Life is good for Tasia, close friends, supportive family, and a spot on her school football team. But when she catches her mama hiding a box filled with mementos from Tasia's life, including a birth certificate with a blank paternity line and a photo of her mom in the arms of some white dude, her identity is suddenly called into question. Turns out the man she always thought was her father isn't, and she's biracial. Determined to unravel the lies that have overtaken her life, Tasia sets off on a path of discovery and finds that forgiveness is more than an 11-letter word. Thanks again to Home and Away by Candace Montgomery for sponsoring this episode of Recommended. R.F. Kuang immigrated to the U.S. from Guangzhou, China, in 2000. She has a B.A. in International History from Georgetown, where her research focused on Chinese military strategy, collective trauma, and war memorials. She's a 2018 Marshall Scholar and a graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop in 2016, and the CSSF Novel Writing Workshop in 2017. Her debut novel, The Poppy War, is the first installment in a trilogy that grapples with drugs, shamanism, and China's bloody 20th century. Hi, my name is R.F. Kuang, and the book I'm recommending is The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Atsuka. The Buddha in the Attic is an interesting novel in that there's not a single main character, it's a plurality of characters, and they all represent anonymous, nameless Japanese women who come over to the U.S. as picture brides. For readers who don't know Japanese picture brides, were these women who were basically chosen from catalogs. So Japanese men would already be in the U.S. working mostly on farms, and they would want uh, women to come over from Japan to, you know, marry them and form a household with and have children. So they would write letters and send pictures of themselves and Japanese women back at home would respond to these letters. And it was often women who were in pretty bad situations of poverty or, you know, like life back at home would have barely been better than an unknown life abroad. So they would respond with their own pictures and then go meet them in California, and when their ship docked, it would be the very first time that they ever saw their husbands, and obviously the pictures often would not match up. Their husbands would be much older or look very different from the images they sent. That's sort of where it starts, and then it details these women's lives as they work as migrant farmers, or, I mean, a lot of them were migrant farmers, but that's not the case for everybody, and they have children, and they uh, learn English and become accustomed to life in the U.S., and then 
World War II breaks out, so then they're forced into Japanese internment camps, and that's sort of where the novel ends. There are no spoilers because this was just a period of history, but it's this lovingly, intricately detailed portrayal of so many different lives and experiences for a very specific demographic that I think a lot of American readers have never heard about. So I think it's pretty cool. It's interesting because there's no one character that you can follow for the course of the book because once they're introduced in a sentence, you get a sliver of their life and they don't have a name and there's no context for where they are. So you never know if you're catching up with them again. It's like dipping your toe multiple times into a river and getting a ton of different experiences all at different points in time. I read it this past May and I remember being blown away. I do modern Chinese history. I also write novels based on ancient and modern Chinese history. But this was sort of the first time that I'd read historical fiction about an Asian experience that wasn't speculative. It was everything that was written about happened, but it was still so creative and so compelling. I remember just being very wowed by this format because I'd never seen that subject material handled that way before, or this specific way of writing where you don't have one main character and it's a hundred different stories being told at once. So I thought that was really cool. There's this one chapter I really resonated with when they started talking about their children and these children were being raised in America, grew up speaking primarily English, and these women were lamenting the fact that they were feeling this distance from their kids. They were going further and further away from them because they were ashamed of their poor Japanese-speaking parents. They didn't want to bring their friends home. They didn't want to come home themselves. They just wanted to integrate. I'm a Chinese immigrant, so it's a little bit different, and my parents were not migrant workers, but I also felt that same sort of distance, the sort of embarrassment of being Chinese and just wishing that I could blend in and be like my white classmates. So it really struck me reading that passage from, I imagine, my mom's point of view and thinking about how she must have felt when I came home and said one day, oh, I don't want to be Chinese. Like, can we just stop talking about that? Reading The Buddha in the Attic made me think really hard about the human impact of sweeping historical trends. And I know that this should seem obvious because I mean, they're like characters in my work and they are impacted by things and they make decisions. But I think there's a difference between the great men and women of history theory, like the people who are driving events, and then sort of like people who are not making decisions that affect the lives of thousands of other people, who, but who are living full and rich inner lives and who are equally affected by war and peace and you know foreign policy and trade negotiations as everyone else. I think the importance of a book like The Buddha in the Attic is to demonstrate the human impact on the lives that we don't think of as heroic or epic or worth examining in popular fiction. Because it is tragic and brutal, and I think when we get so caught up in heroic uh, adventure narratives, we forget about all the people who are suffering as the consequence of actions that we think are really cool, like, oh my gosh, warfare, how awesome, right? Like, But what about the people who are starving? What about the refugees and the migrants and people who are losing fathers and brothers and sons to army recruitment? Because this book doesn't even have... A main character and it's not about one person's journey it's about the impacts of horrible things on anonymous people uh, so 
recognizing the importance of that, I think, adds texture to the narratives I'm writing now. I think it makes me a little less irresponsible about just being like, oh, then this dam broke and it was a really great military strategy. A lot of people died, but it was a good way of like stopping the enemy. Uh, and I think that as authors, we can often have that tunnel vision when we're writing epic fantasy, uh, focusing solely on the protagonist's quests and not everybody who's affected by that. But that is an overwhelmingly important calculation. So I think that sort of attention to detail and the consequences, I think, has stuck with me. Since I've read The Buddha in the Attic, I've gotten really interested in Asian American experiences that are not Chinese American experiences because that's what I grew up knowing about. And I mean, I focus on Chinese history, so I just sort of did not uh, read so much about Japanese, Korean, Filipino experiences. But during AAPI Heritage Month, I thought that was a massive oversight. So I started reading a lot of Asian American histories. I read a lot of really good stuff, and I don't think that I ever would have found it if I weren't deliberately searching for it, because I think that Asian American literature still is not seen as super mainstream. In my local Texas library, all these books are categorized under ethnic, which I think is unfortunate. But this is like really good literature and should be like celebrated on its own merits rather than being a niche Asian American field. So I wish more people would dive into those authors. Thanks again to R.F. Kuang for joining us and recommending The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Otsuka. The Poppy War, published by Harper Voyager, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at KuangRF. Next week on Recommended, one author recommends a book with a unique structure. The novel is a single sentence. And at first that seems, I don't know, bizarre or uh, a party trick. But what you realize as you're reading it is that in every way it's a success. It's rather enthralling, like a tightrope walk that's working. And you begin to forget the tightrope and realize this is part of the dance, is that it goes on this single line of there's only, there's no periods. And yet uh, grammatically and rhetorically, uh, syntactically, it's all very successful. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com.